Joey Podcast. Mm-hmm. Hey, hello, and welcome to the podcast. Me and Andy here today. Happy Halloween, everybody. Yeah. We don't have a very Halloween-y episode for you this week. Uh, I might have a prolet cult coming up uh, that'll be spooky. But we got uh, spooky settlers coming up. Well, they're all spooky. They are spooky. It's uh, Halloween town. The specter of settler colonialism weighs on us like a nightmare. It really does. Yeah, I wish we could point to things in the news that clearly uh, defy Sakai's thesis, but uh, that's been difficult, as you heard on our last episode. And the next episode is going to be about the integration of Native Americans and the creation of a Native American bourgeoisie as well as African-American solidarity with Ethiopia after fascist Italy's invasion. So that's a very relevant chapter, uh, and that'll hopefully come out this week. So you say that, that out. And, and yet I think that I at least have successfully, successfully refuted uh, a bit of his thesis. I've been trying to anyways. Well, just the because the thesis is, is refuted does not mean it's irrelevant, and it's certainly this chapter is relevant to Killers, Killers of the Flower Moon, which we'll be talking about yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. the history so. is certainly relevant. That's a little preview of that, but today we are not. We are going to uh, exercise the specter of Sakai from our episode, and we'll be talking from a internationalist communist viewpoint, one that believes the working man has no nation, mm-hmm. whether oppressed or otherwise. That's right. Uh, apologies if uh, if I'm a little slow today. I got a new job. So I'm coming straight from work. I hate podcasting straight from work, but sometimes yeah. it has to be done. I will say that today I, w- I had a pretty easy day. I was the flag man, one of the more expensive flag men in New York City, I'm sure, just getting concrete trucks. You have to the wave door. the American flag. I had to wave the American flag. Settler colonialism comes for you every fucking time. Yeah, now, so here I am. Let's podcast. Let's talk about Israel-Palestine, eh? What better thing to talk about? It's hard to be like, I, I try to put on like a faux jaunty sort of thing there, but it's it's a very dire situation as we've talked about in the past. Yeah, it just gets worse and worse, which I think was part of the initial horror of the whole thing is that it was already as bad as it could be for people living in Gaza, getting worse and worse for people in the West Bank. And then it was obvious that the only way Israel was capable of dealing with Hamas's incursion was to punish the people of Gaza and the West Bank and possibly of Lebanon and Egypt and Iran potentially and its own citizens uh, as much as possible. And we're seeing that now with what appears to be a campaign moving in the direction of ethnically cleansing the entirety of Gaza or reconcentrating the millions of people living in Gaza into an even smaller Gaza. I don't understand what else they would do. I think there'll be significant international pressure against that, but I don't know what the counter offer is. Like what would Biden, uh, you know, so let's say we have the, the pro, like, you know, the anti-war movement in the United States is back. It's, it's big. Mm. It, you know, there's protests every day. They're getting bigger. Uh, the media is having trouble ignoring it. Um, so I, you know, uh, initially I was pretty, I thought the protests were pretty depressing and bleak, but it is beautiful for me to like be biking around mm. this weekend, Halloween weekend and seeing people waving Palestinian flags, marching down the street all over the place. I haven't seen this much activity in New York since the George Floyd uprising. Yeah. And, uh, in the past I've been somewhat critical of some of the rhetoric of the pro-Palestinian movement, but for the most part, what I see in these protests is not that. It is um, a very genuine um, concern for Palestinian people without major political uh, ambitions outside of that, which is, I think, the best thing we can do right now is this, this goal of a ceasefire, of stopping a genocide or an ethnic cleansing in process. I think that's completely worthy to do, and that's us prefacing what might come off as a bit critical, but I think we're all on the same page on that one. Yeah, I mean, we um, um, it, it could not be clearer, and the practical activity could not be more important, calling for a ceasefire. And not only has, as you say, these uh, protests been large and spreading through the United States, through Europe, uh, through the Middle East, uh, and across the world, but also starting, I'd say, this week, this last week of October, it seems to have taken some effect. It seems like today it came out 
there were documents supposedly leaked. I'm not sure if they're true or not. That came from the Israeli blob um, that apparently up until a week or so ago, and the United States was pushing for this, there was going to be, the plan was to ethnically cleanse Gaza. The plan was to expel the Gazan people, move them into the Sinai Peninsula, uh, build temporary housing for them, and essentially have like a lasting solution to the Gaza crisis. And then try to repopulate some of them to other countries. Yeah, yeah. From yeah. the, uh, as we all know, from reading from Hebrew school, from the desert, that is yeah. the Sinai Peninsula. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it appears, though, that with the leaking of those documents, which were probably leaked from somebody within the Israel state, Israeli state who was uh, appalled by this outright ethnic cleansing, uh, the scary thing is that it looks like Biden and Blinken and the administration was trying to put pressure on Egypt and other uh, nations like Saudi Arabia in the region to allow this to happen. So this had the f- kind of the full force of the Biden administration for a couple of weeks or so. But it looks like even Biden and them, despite their bear hug of BB, this like basically fascist settler government, <laughs> but uh, despite um uh, Biden giving 100% support for the Gaza, for the uh, destruction of Gaza, for the bombing of children and hospitals and schools and UN and journalists. It now appears that the United States has blinked uh, because they face so much pressure from other ruling classes uh, in the region for various reasons uh, from Europeans as well. And I think more and more, and this is to get back to the ceasefire protest, this is more and more showing, I think, the effectiveness, far far more effectiveness than we saw in 2003 with the um, anti-war protests uh, because parts of the democratic coalition are breaking, which is a positive thing, especially as... Biden and company looking towards re-election look at the 200,000 Palestinian Americans who live in swing states like Michigan. Um, The bourgeois press in the United States, and I don't want to get, I don't want to turn this episode into like a media criticism episode, you know, because other people have done it and they've done it well. When I read the newspaper or I watch videos or watch the news uh, about this conflict, A, I feel like I'm taking fucking crazy pills the way that it's being outlined as this sort of like out of nowhere, out of the blue terrorist act, as though Hamas is equivalent to like Al Qaeda or something like. Well, that. they want to push the, the the narrative that it's blood libel to even say that there was any reason why a terrorist attack would occur, which is you know just brings us back to nine eleven. Thinking yeah. like, why would this? Why would they do it? They must not like us just because they're mean, and that's works for simple-minded people but most people are not so simple-minded oh i i don't know i feel like um the polls are not looking good for that narrative they they were looking good for a couple weeks i feel like like clapping seals the uh vital center in the united states at least as represented by like the mainstream like lying bourgeois press really i think was getting people on board with whatever sort of means would be necessary, including ethnic cleansing, certainly up into including the, what, 10,000 Gazans who have been summarily bombed and executed by the Israeli state. It seems as though that narrative, the narrative of this being a sort of out of the blue terrorist act was sort of working in the beginning due to the the, the atrocity of, of 1,400 people, many of them civilians being killed. Of course, this grabbed people by their heartstrings. But I think now, um, because it's becoming political, you're seeing two things happen. You're seeing parts of the liberal left and the left break from Biden and his like 100% support of whatever it is that Bibi Netanyahu does. Um, and you're also seeing at the same time a uh, full court press to try to basically outlaw free speech. I don't know if you saw that Ron DeSantis came out and passed a, tried to pass a law in Florida. It might go through uh, to ban pro-Palestinian uh, rights organizations, student organizations from Florida State Universities. Mm. So there's like, as the narrative shifts, you know, as there's been pushback to the absolute atrocities happening in Gaza right now, the bloodshed, the killing of children, the killing of journalists, the killings of entire families uh, by the IDF, uh, you're starting to see the right wing in this country and the right wing in Israel start to push back in very illiberal sorts of ways. And I think this is something that you know, we've been seeing growing for the last 20, 30 years or so, but it's something that this issue is being wrapped up in, you know, free speech and dangerous speech and anti-Semitism and hate speech. Uh, just saying that Palestinians have a right to exist is is becoming hate speech. 
I don't think that's, yeah, I don't think that's going to work. I don't think it has worked. Uh, obviously, in, in like Texas, where you have to, <laughs> if you're working for the state, you have to pledge some loyalty oath to Israel or something. Right. And uh, in, the, in these super right-wing places where the evangelicals have enough um, power to, to push that shit through, yeah, I could see that going through. Um, and sure, pa- Palestinian groups are being suppressed on college campuses outside and of those places as well. Festivals, Palestinian authors are being banned. No, not even Palestinian festival. groups, but Jewish groups as well, who yeah. are uh, you know correctly uh, critique Israel and yeah. critique Zionism. Uh, however, I think that the, uh, the 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 forces that want to defend Israel no matter what, we're relying on just an inherent ignorance and racism of. Arabic people and the idea that Arabs are savages, they want to behead babies, they want to rape and pillage, and that's the whole story here. And anything is justified by the uh, the the drives of jihadists and Islamists, um, and that just hasn't worked. Like we're we're not seeing um, the cover, the, the front page of, of newspapers are uh, are not talking about the war in Gaza the way they talked about the war in Iraq, for instance, which was um, over an ex- a longer period of time, but just as brutal, just as bloody, just as horrific and genocidal and ethnic cleansing as this war. Uh, but the coverage of that war was far, far more cheerleading, yeah. whereas you see a lot of hand-wringing from places like the New York Times. From you, the- you see them saying, uh, like, covering how horrible it must be to be a civilian in Gaza and the fact that there is really no humanitarian drive behind what Israel's doing. The, the, they would love to repeat the myth that the IDF is the most moral army in the world. That was what I learned in Hebrew school mm. that was backed up by the U.S. media during the Second Intifada and during the uh, uh, Israel's wars through the last 20 years. You can't say that now. The question now is just, can we deny ethnic cleansing? Can we deny these atrocities? And they can't. So they have to just cover it as a sort of balance to say that there are these people like Biden or whoever who want to aid uh, uh, Palestinian people in some way. And then part of that plan that you mentioned is trying to frame the ethnic cleansing as a humanitarian mm-hmm. uh, initiative. Right, right. And from what I read, and I've read very little about that document, that was one of three options being considered early on. Um, it's an option that seems popular with a faction of the IDF and uh, you know the the new governing coalition. But there are splits in the governing coalition, um, and it's unclear if they will go with that plan. But it's also unclear what other plan could be uh put in that's any better i think i think the 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 the, there's like a horse race to present a plan in the most humanitarian sounding way that will do the most damage to gaza and the people who live there um in an effort to depopulate it as much as possible that's my reading of it i don't see any forces that have in the israeli state uh the israeli military that have any sincere interest in any kind of human, truly humanitarian solution, besides just let's get rid of these people in the whatever way we can. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I feel like Israel blinked. Uh, I feel like there was a possibility two weeks ago that a uh, full invasion was going to happen, and I suppose there still is. It uh, ha- it may, there's something happening as we speak. Maybe not a full invasion, yeah. But my <clears throat> what I've heard from just various sources who follow these things is that. The Biden administration convinced um, Israel against a full-scale invasion of Gaza. Instead, they're going to do like quote-unquote surgical, like special forces strikes. I think because they're scared shitless that Hezbollah is going to jump in, and then when Hezbollah jumps in, you'd have Syria pop off, and you'd obviously have the Houthi situation in Yemen, leading to potentially uh, a full-scale war with uh, Iran. There were um, there are two carrier groups in uh, the East Mediterranean, Eastern Mediterranean right now. They potentially will go up to four. And that shows you how serious the United States is about either trying to contain this uh, or have the forces available if this breaks into a full scale war. But it seems as though they're pulling back from that because the consequences for Israel's Israeli society, uh, for the Israeli economy of having 350,000 reservists called up. Um, 
are dire and serious. And it's not entirely clear to me or to policy planners, it seems like in the State Department, that on its own, Israel wins in a two-front war or potentially a three-front war if you had Hezbollah and the West Bank pop off uh, at the same time. So it, there's there's a lot happening. By the time this episode comes out on Wednesday, a lot of this will probably be out of date already because things are moving fast. So let's get into a bit of um, analysis of this, you know, because... Neither Andy nor I are experts on this, and we wouldn't claim to be. Uh, there's a lot of really great sources out there. I mean, on this issue, I came up with um, with Chomsky and Finkelstein, you know, who have been in the trenches of this uh, with media criticism, with analysis uh, for decades, and those are the people that I really followed. What we want to offer here on the Antifada is our perspective, a different perspective, uh, one that's sensitive to the violence, the mass violence that's happening right now, sensitive to the uh, resistance uh, of that violence, but also tries to resituate things in such a way that it could be understandable from an internationalist communist perspective. And I'll add to Chomsky and Finkelstein, um, I, I was I went to Israel in 2009, I think. It was after the Mavi Mamara humanitarian flotilla was attacked by the IDF. And uh, before I took that trip, I also read Edward Said. And since I've... I took that trip. I've read um, some more left communist or anarchist leading historical framings of the Palestinian resistance that is more from the ground up. So for sure, the uh, the first intifada begins with a, a general strike and then becomes more as it spreads throughout civil society, uh, meets resistance from the Palestinian petty bourgeoisie and the Palestinian bourgeois and political class, but also the broader Arab political class. So Finkelstein and Chomsky are very good for looking at the, the sort of the, the history of Zionism. Uh, it's, you know, it's lies, it's myth-making and stuff like that. But there's also a lot of myth-making to be avoided in how Palestinian resistance is framed because there is class struggle within that resistance. Right. And Palestinian people have had to fight not only Israel, but they've had to fight their own political leaders. They've had to fight the political leadership of Egypt and Jordan and Syria and Lebanon. People living in refugee camps in those countries, as well as in Israel, have faced immense repression that's had to overcome not only lawlessness and cravenness of the Israeli state, but also have had to confront that uh, the interests of the states that claim to be allies of the Palestinian people have interests that really want to contain Palestinian people as a bargaining chip and fear Palestinian resistance themselves because an intifada can and has swept throughout the region and destabilized the class order in those places. These are very fragile you know, these um, these states in the region are very fragile ones. There's a whole history of there, of course, of like pan-Arab nationalism, which is big in the uh, post-war period, uh, which fades, some would say collapses under its own contradictions by the 1970s and 1980s. This is a deeper history that I think we both want to explore. I'm personally, and I'm going to bracket this out because I want to return uh, to Palestine and the occupation sometime in the next couple of weeks. I'm reading about the political economy of Israel and the political economy of uh, the occupation. There's this great book by Sheer Hever, uh, which I'm reading. If anybody else out there is an expert in the political economy of the region and the class structure in the region, uh, please hit us up and recommend me more readings. Because I think that looking at this in terms of class and looking at this in terms of the material relations at play, uh, the ways in which the Palestinian working class has been integrated and disintegrated uh, from the uh, the occupier's economy, from Israel's economy, uh, and the way in which the Israeli working class has faced various different ups and downs through the decades is an interesting way to look at this and one that's going to hopefully be able to put some flesh on the bones of the things that we talk about today. This is a little bit less than a war that Israel is um, prosecuting on the Palestinian people of Gaza. Uh, it's almost like a special military operation. Um, and its uh, attempt is to demilitarize uh, the region. It's stated attempt. Uh, stated intent is to demilitarize the, the region. And as we've all heard over the last few weeks, um, Islamism, political Islamism, is essentially the Nazism of the 21st century. So I find it interesting that all of a sudden now this special military operation by Israel to demilitarize and denazify the Gaza Strip 
has the full support of the United States, showing once again the million ways in which the hypocrisy of American imperial, uh, the American imperial order, the rules-based international order, and our declining, decaying empire are just rife everywhere. Yeah, but I mean, that's no surprise. And it's not um, surprising. one thing that's kind of easy for me to ignore is the people being disappointed with Biden for saying one thing or, or the other. And, uh, you know, Biden's, it, it does, I mean, I, I will say it is um, particularly disheartening to have someone like Biden be in charge of this situation because uh-huh. he just, he seems incredibly out of his element. His story changes all the time. And um, so I, I understand why people focus on what Biden has to say. Uh, but obviously, if we're talking about Biden, if we're talking about Israel, the state, if we're talking about Hamas, we're talking about people who are playing a, a much different game than what we're interested in, right. it, which is that we are horrified by what we're seeing in Gaza because of the people who live there. And we know that they are, you know, even if they are, uh, uh, even if they're Muslim, even if they've lived their entire lives in uh, a prison, that in many ways they're similar to us. Mm-hmm. They're Much on, more so than Anthony Blinken, I would say. Yes, exactly. So we're so our concerns and their concerns are very different, and so it doesn't really matter what those entities say, except for reading the tea leaves of what's going to come next. Right. And so what matters to us is the working class, the proletariat of Israel and Palestine, which does exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the temptation is to say uh, that it doesn't. That this is a conflict between. Two nations, one nation's oppressed, and to take a, a position of national liberation. But a reading of that history is more complicated than that, because national liberation for Palestine does not necessarily mean freedom for the Palestinian people. Um, in fact, in many cases, it's meant further subjugation through making permanent of refugee camps in, in the region. Um, so, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll try. I have, I have a few things I want to say. Um, the first is that I've never been a Zionist. Uh, I went to Hebrew school and I even believed in God until I had my bar mitzvah. Oh. Uh, for some reason, like the day after my bar mitzvah, I didn't believe in God anymore. You it's should weird. try believing in God again. Hashem, it'd be nice for you. Yeah, I'll give it a try. I don't give think it it's going to work, but <laughs> maybe yeah, one someday. day. Yeah. And when I hit rock bottom, maybe <laughs> I'll have to acknowledge a higher power. But for now, uh, it's working out being an atheist for me. I know that's old school. Um, but yeah, at Hebrew school, after every service, we ended with the singing of Hatikva, which is the Israeli national anthem. There was a Israeli flag on the bima, um, and despite all that, I was a skeptic. And my uh, my you know uh, classmates in Hebrew school were also skeptics. We were hearing about what was happening during the intif- the second intifada, the suicide bombings, and that sort of thing. And we found that information horrible as it was, but it didn't turn us into uh, particularly Zionist people. And then even um, going on birthright, as I did in 2009, did not turn me into a Zionist. And actually very few people on my group hmm. uh, became particularly Zionist afterwards. I think only one person ended up, maybe two ended up making Aliyah, becoming uh, an Israeli citizen as a result of that trip out of about 40. And what do you, what accounts for that? Was that the particular milieu you were in, like in the New York suburbs or like you're in a more liberal place? Like, what do you, why do you think? I think just younger, younger people are less susceptible to the the propaganda of Zionism because I think one point, like our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation, the Zionist project was state building for a Jewish home where Jewish people could be safe. And there was rhetoric that it would be a righteous country that would welcome all refugees from all over the world. And we just know that's not true now. That lie has just totally gone out the window. Yeah, the, the real degradation of even the stated claims of the Zionist project has been through your lifetime, I think, pretty spectacular. The last 20 years, certainly since the end of the peace process, right? So when I look at the Times coverage, mainstream media coverage, I think a lot of it is aimed at people like my dad, who is a, a liberal lefty kind of person. And who in the past um, has, like, like for example, when I went to Mexico the first time, my dad was pretty concerned that Mexico at one point was anti-Zionist or made a statement against Israel in some way. And so at some point in his history, Israel did affect him in a way that made him take pro-Zionist positions. But when I came back from there and told him like what I saw and what was going on, he 
you know, wasn't particularly disappointed in me. So even someone like him, who's sort of grew up with some pro-Israel sentiments, it, it, it doesn't work forever. And there's a lot of disillusionment happening right now as as people who aren't completely dogma, dogmatic have to look at the situation and defend it, at least to themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, how can I justify the situation? And a good way to do that is just not knowing much about it. But if if what you see going on is blackouts and carpet bombing and mass refugees and ethnic cleansing, how do you justify that? Right. Um, it's it's really difficult to do, and you kind of have to become like a, what's it called, Hasbara or whatever. You have to just become like a media organ of the Israeli state to be able to justify it, and most people aren't willing to do that. Right. Um, but uh, that said, even though I've never been a Zionist, if you knew me 12 years ago, I did have a lot of um, informed but ultimately, I don't know, naive or stupid things to say about Israel, and I'm sorry for a lot of that stuff. I knew uh, you back then. It never came up. You never <laughs> mentioned it once. <laughs> I just chalk it up. It's nothing I've ever said on the show, I don't think, but I just chalk it up to like being young and thinking I'm smarter than everyone in a way. And also, and also like the pro-Palestinian left after the second intifada was also pretty misinformed uh, for the most part. And so I did know a little bit more than people, other people, but I took this position that Israel is basically a normal state Mm. committing the normal atrocities a state does as part of their state building exercise in a way that's true. But I, I took that analysis to the point of kind of downplaying the reality of like how bad that situation would get. Uh, the trajectory of it and i now you know 10 years later i now see that it is it is as bad as the pro-palestinian people were saying and also i want to say that i'm sorry that the show is called the antifada because you know that wasn't my choice but we've never done any serious work about palestine outside of two to three episodes uh out of hundreds and I think in a way it's a subject we kind of avoided. It is just one conflict in one place in the world. I think there is a temptation for people, especially now, to think it's the central conflict, the most important conflict. There are millions of people facing um, ethnic cleansing and genocide around the world who aren't in Israel and Palestine. So yeah. um, it's very it's very central to um, to the United States because of the uh, complicated and complex history that we have with uh, Israel. And um, certainly the way in which um, various, I don't know, like uh, the, the alliance, the strong alliance between the United States and Israel means that it is certainly a conflict um, that uh, is at the forefront uh, for a lot of us because, you know, America could do something about it. Like it is a political subject where like if the United States, if you had a political movement to stop, say, the $3 billion of military aid every year, right, that could have a real effect on the ground. So it looms large in a way that something like Uzbekistan or whatever wouldn't. Uh, in terms of the name of the podcast, when you sent me the notes for this and you said that I hate this, this podcast is called The Antifada, I was walking the dog and I was like, oh man, does this mean we can finally change the name? <laughs> I was like thinking about all the different names that we could have for this podcast. But then you just sent me your um, the notice from Publishers Weekly that uh, you have a new book coming out, that you got a book deal. And I saw on that notice that went out to thousands of people on the front, it said, you're the co-host of the Antifada podcast. And I said, there we go. Now we can't change it. <laughs> Andy needs it for his writer's career. Well, it's not that we should change it. It's that we should honor the name to some extent the intifada part of it we've talked a lot about antifa obviously and fascism and so i think hopefully that's what we're going to be doing in this episode and in future episodes like talking about the intifada and the significance of it and the significance of it today as palestinian civil society starts moving again which is what started the first and second intifada if our patrons out there if you guys think and please sound off in the comments that we really should change the name. Andy and I can have a serious <laughs> talk about it because I've been embarrassed. Like people have been like, "Oh, you should have like this this Palestinian communist on the show," and I'm like, "Oh, I'm like cringing. Like, oh, the name of our podcast is he going to think that we're anti like intifada or whatever." And I think it's grandfathered in at this point. It is, but it's like it's like this this thing that we have to jump through and explain ourselves, and it's it's different now than like the jokey way that it was kind of thrown together five years ago. Just like Antifa is like different from the jokey way we threw it together five years yeah, ago. Yeah, it never meant anti-Intifada. It, it meant, never did, but some it, it was like a, it was a, a briefly used slur from the right, trying to, to say that the Intifada was Islamic terrorism, which for the most part it was not, 
and Antifa are like Islamic terrorists. Yeah. So it was a combination of those names and it was like sort of taking that back. I yeah, think. and trying to get a rise out of like the um, worst people in the world. And I think that's actually like in a way more valid today as we're starting to see these lines being redrawn, not among people who have different perspectives uh, politically about the Israel-Palestine conflict, but the fact that the uh, sort of global order that backs up Israel in this in this barbarity um, is extremely conservative, wants to crush the left, yeah. and uh, the state of Israel, the trajectory of it is moving dramatic, has moved and will continue to move dramatically right-wing direction. So the these kibbutznik dreams of a social democratic Israel that in some way absorbs or displaces Palestinian people into their own state or into simply into subjugated occupied territories, even that is going away. Yeah. And I, I'll talk about that briefly when, um, when I give my statement after you're finished with yours, because I think that's an important context too. But so go on. Um, after saying that my apology for my, uh, my youthful uh, uh, contrarianism on the subject um, we've done a lot of on the show to talk about structural anti-Semitism, and I think that's as relevant as ever. Yeah, because this is not a conflict between Jews and Palestinians; it's a conflict between the Zionist wing of Judaism and their allies, and on the other side, the people who live in Gaza, the, the Palestinians who live in the West Bank, Palestinian Israelis, Palestinian refugees, the broader Palestinian diaspora, Le the Lebanese, Syrians, Iranians, etc. The majority of the enemies of Israel are working class people. And their resistance to Israel is uh, also contained within it, a class struggle that should not be forgotten. And Palestinians are not D-class A or pre-modern people. They're not peasants or serfs. They're not slaves. They fundamentally want what the working class people everywhere want, which is freedom in their lives freedom for themselves and those around them, a hope for a better future. And on that basis alone, the Palestinian proletariat has launched numerous rebellions. The most climatic of these was the first and second intifadas. These spontaneous revolts began with strikes and demonstrations and riots. But because of militarism and nationalism and anti-Semitism, they were able to be steered by uh, the political class and the bourgeoisie of Israel and of Palestine and of the Arab countries into nationalist bloodshed. And this is how Hamas came into power. This is how the Palestinian Authority was able to become the sort of vassal state of Israel in the West Bank. And I think those regimes are totally delegitimized amongst the Palestinian. I won't say totally. Maybe Hamas has more support now than it did before. I don't know. But I would wager that Palestinian people are not very happy with Hamas for, for this. And I think part of the reason that Hamas is not as popular as it could be is because they're very repressive towards people in, in Gaza. There was actually demonstrations in Gaza in 2017 that uh, Hamas deemed illegal and fired onto the crowd. Mm. And so people in Gaza are not Islamic fundamentalists. Uh, was, you know, Some are, some aren't. But like the people of Israel are not Jewish fundamentalists for the most part. They just want to be free. They want to live their lives. And I think the way that that plays out is very similar to when you talk about politics in the United States. Your average person probably doesn't particularly care about Palestinian people. Your average Israeli probably doesn't particularly care about Palestinian people. But that, that also means they don't particularly want to eliminate Palestinian people. Mm. I think obviously... In Israel, like you don't have very good choices. Like there's not a, a obviously major anti-war upsurge. That the the big political conflict seems to be against Netanyahu for bungling this thing, for allowing this thing to happen, for letting the country go so rightward, um, and also the fact that they seem poised to sacrifice any and all hostages mm -hmm. for the sake of their territorial ambitions in Gaza, and so. Yeah, your average Israeli is not necessarily an internationalist and doesn't want like working class solidarity with Palestinian people. And probably the same thing is true of most Palestinians as well. They're just indifferent to it. And th but that doesn't mean that they want protracted war. They, do they don't want ethnic cleansing from the river to the sea does not mean, I think, to the vast majority of people chanting it. Uh, let's get rid of all of the Jews mm. from the region. I you do have some. Um English-speaking commenters on, uh, on say, Twitter and other sites who take that meaning. 
It's like the right. Uh, yeah, and, I'm, and you've probably that. got some Palestinian militants who believe that as well. Yeah. And obviously, you have a lot of Zionists who believe the opposite of that. But that kind of genocidal ambition, I don't think is particularly popular with your average working class person. Yeah, I think I think your average Israeli person is concerned about their rent, about their wages, about their family. Uh, their concerns are, you, we could call them small-minded, but these these are our concerns as well as working-class people. And the ideological questions are becoming more and more horrifying. As a result of that, Israel will eventually move towards a policy of stabilizing and getting back to normal. Not in terms of stabilizing the lives of Palestinian people, but trying to return Israel to being this, like, fun, profitable, capitalist, cosmopolitan place. Mm. A capitalist country, not a Jewish country. Mm. I'm not sure about that, but it's an interesting possibility. I think that about half, based on the basically like near civil war we've seen over the last year or so um, between these two factions, let's say, of uh, Israeli society, you've got, broadly speaking, like the real fundamentalist settler psychopaths, like the neo-Kahanist eliminationists, let's call them. Uh, who are part of the Netanyahu coalition? Coalition, but a small part. A small part that can uh, they can be marginalized again, along with and then the rest of the coalition is like the the sort of Ashkenazi uh, neocons, which uh, pragmatist neocons, which is what uh, Netanyahu is. Uh, you also have like the the vet, like the um, the Russian and Ukrainian recent immigrants who tend to skew very conservative. Tend to not all of them, and the Mizrahi Jews, right? That's like one large block of society. Uh, again, and they're the ones that wanted to push for the judicial reform. They're the ones who are um, pushing for like the real serious, like theocratic sort of settler Eretz Israel vision. But then you have what's left of the you know 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s uh, social democratic, like socialist vision of Zionism and the way in which, of course, that has sort of tended towards third way sort of like social democratic. Um, rhetoric who are opposed to this judicial reform who are in many cases like prominent members of the idf prominent members of the quote-unquote business community and like the tel aviv middle class the educated middle class the cosmopolitan middle class the conflicts we've seen over these judicial laws as i understand it you know not having ever been to israel are as much um about the fundamentals of what um israel is going to be a jewish state a settler state and Eretz Israel state versus like a cosmopolitan capitalist state with liberal values. That is like a deep divide that this conflict that's happening right now comes out of that divide. Because of course what Hamas's um, attack has provided is some sort of temporary unity between these two great wings of Israeli society. And you know, this is simplifying things a lot, a lot, most people land in the middle of it, but I'm not sure that structurally just because of like demographics, there is a way to make Israel a quote-unquote normal capitalist country at this point. No, I, what I'm talking about is, nor- well, what I mean is that uh, if you're an Israeli citizen, from what I can tell, you know, this is going back to when I was there and I was talking to people. There wasn't this kind of widespread, you know, they don't have this idea of like Judean Samaria. Judean Samaria. Yeah, Judean Samaria, like this greater Israel nationalist thing. And, you know, even a lot of the settlers in the West Bank don't know or care about that. Like they're poor people who have been sort of economically herded into these settlements and are now like enlisted to defend it in some way by the ideologues and by the state. It's a state, project. the state and the ideologues that yeah. were previously largely intention, but, but Israel's a class society as well. And so you get working class people signed up to be part of paramilitaries. And certainly the IDF is largely very young Israelis who have been, you know, uh, taught the, these nationalist myths from a very young age um, and are largely ignorant of the history of Israel, mm-hmm. largely ignorant of Arabic culture and Palestinian people um, and kind of want it that way. Like they prefer to live in their ignorance. They prefer to go to raves on weekends without fear. You know, mm-hmm. I think that is uh, obviously the way that gets expressed in terms of what political parties are in power at a, at a certain time and how they feel about the judicial reform, how they feel about uh uh, housing costs, which was a, a major motivation for for street movement in uh, amongst Jewish Israelis in the last ten years, um, obviously that gets expressed back into the balance of power within the Knesset and the Zionist project. I just don't think that certainly 
Zionism has not been broadly delegitimized, but it will be if it continues to look like a situation of constant and total war. Mm. And so it's in Israel's interest to try to put the genie of this possible regional war back in the bottle. Um, Without somehow conceding a Palestinian state, though, or stopping the settlements, because that's the real structural impediment here. It's like even like the Benny Gantzes of the world, who's part of like the normal, you know, liberal coalition, which isn't for that liberal. They still, too, as I understand it, don't want to stop the settlement process. I think I'm just saying I agree with all you're saying. I don't think that the average Israeli working class person is an ideologue one way or the other, just like in the United States. Um I'm just not sure if structurally there's a way out of this mess that doesn't lead to like a eliminationist era to Israel. But I just, I just completely brought us off on a side discussion right now. Mm-hmm. Um, go on. Well, I think the eliminationism, if it looks like it's going to push the safety and stability of Israeli citizens further into crisis, which it will, will um, become more unpopular than it already is. I hope so. And so moving on from there, I want to talk just a little bit about myself and like how we feel in the United States, Um, myself as a secular Jew, but in general, just leftists who maybe don't have deep connections to Israel or Palestine. Um, Like I don't, I don't think I know anyone who lives there. I probably have some family that lives there, but I don't know who they are. I don't think I know anyone. I know Palestinians, but they don't live in Gaza or the West Bank. I'm not in touch with the people I met when I was there on either side. Um, so that's a, that's a very privileged position. And I think uh, these past weeks um, from that position, I like everyone have been struggling mentally and physically in a way with metabolizing the news of this war. Uh, like I've actually, I had a, a recurring dream a couple of times that my mind was like this battlefield on the front line uh, where I'm being sort of bombarded with, information and images and statistics of death and destruction and the the knowledge of the immense pain and trauma that every resident of gaza and millions more throughout the region have suffered and will continue to suffer for the rest of their lives and as a secular jew in new york uh i have no fear whatsoever of being violently attacked by anyone except maybe zionists or like a cop at a demonstration fortunately i have not seen that happen i think there was a bit of a a fight at one of the demonstrations in Sunset Park. Um, but I think listeners can relate to that uneasy feeling of on one hand, trying to stay informed and figure out how to act. And on the other, not letting a situation that we have practically no control over control our own lives. Mm. And, you know, as part of me doing this podcast, I simply can't just turn, turn off the news, turn away from the situation. I can like, you know, I, I had went to a couple of parties this weekend, and I was able to do that without uh, without thinking about it. But obviously, whenever I get a moment to myself, I, I read the news. I try to stay abreast of what's going on um, because I think I owe it to the listeners. And uh, but it's it's very painful, and we just because we're not feeling the same pain as someone who lives there or someone who's connected to people that live there doesn't mean that we shouldn't think about ourselves and like how we uh how we treat ourselves with dealing with this situation and so moving on from that what little comfort i found dealing with this is theorizing recognizing how this barbarism in gaza fits into the totality the totality meaning everything the class struggle a world order of nation states right imperial blocks political classes uh political factions economics but on also just like what that means for me and and you in our own lives mm-hmm. um that's the totality not just what you read in the papers and how you feel about whatever leader in whatever country but also how we experience capitalism and war and nationalism on a day-to-day basis and there's a strong discourse running right now that argues that stopping a genocide should take precedence over everything else And I reject this because the tools that we have to stop one genocide now can't stop other genocides, ethnic cleansings, and similar atrocities elsewhere in the future. I think the best case scenario for a ceasefire is that it puts those ambitions on hold. Mm. And that resumption against uh, the resumption of hostilities against the people of Gaza and the West Bank can be at best only put on hold until this, this question is really resolved. 
And that's the historic failure, failure of national liberation because the colonial proletariat under certain conditions has been able to free itself from the direct subjugation of imperial powers only to be resubjugated again by the nationalist bourgeoisie. And that nationalist bourgeoisie, no matter how socialist they are, no matter how sincere they are about uplifting their own people, are at the mercy of international capital. And so under best circumstances, a Palestinian state will still have to uh, deal with Israel, deal with Saudi Arabia and Jordan and Lebanon and, and the powers that be. So simply a two-state solution is maybe a better temporary way out of this or a one-state solution. You know, there's more just solutions, but we're, we're facing a situation that's clearly an image of the future of what's happening in Gaza, where if you are a, a, a surplus population that, for whatever reason, political, economic, is not being integrated into international economy, and you try to revolt against those conditions of subjugation, you'll be subject to the most cruel and inhumane treatment uh, under best conditions and outright slaughter under worst conditions. That's not new, of course. It's an ongoing process. Uh, but I think people are starting to feel that this, what's going on in Gaza is, is what the, the world order is increasingly looking like, that certain people are just fucked. If you're in Haiti... If you're in Myanmar, if you're in Azerbaijan, if you know if you're if you're the marginalized group there, and you are deemed uh, uh, undesirable, you're going to be treated as less than human, and it's politically expedient at certain times to be treated that way, and that's going to of course get worse and worse as wealth inequality gets worse and worse, and the cost of stabilizing that um, nice cosmopolitan capitalist existence requires more and more barbarity. Um, so as with everything in Israel and Palestine, aspects of the situation are totally unique and special and deserve kind of a specialized way of thinking about it. And it's unprecedented in a way, but in another way, we have to, to look at how the situation in Israel and Israeli politics and the Israeli working class is just not so different than the United States. We have a massive prison system in the United States. Um, I've, I've heard this, this discourse about like, how could you go to a rave right next to a concentration camp? Well, we have raves in Queens right next to Rikers. Well, there you go. And Rikers, you know, of course, the situation Rikers and Gaza are different, mm -hmm. but it's the same impulse of barbarity of like, those people in Rikers, I don't know why they're there, but fuck them. They deserve to die. That's the, that's the policy of liberal New York state government. Mm -hmm. That is what Eric Adams and pretty much everyone involved in, in New York state politics defends and upholds. So it's, it's close to home is what I'm saying. And it's not, and it's closer to home than we think. And we, we need to be conscious of that. Um, conscious of the way that we're not so different than Israelis. Powerful statement, man. Really, really powerful. Um, thank you for that. I think you, um, you nodded towards a lot of, uh, my feelings about the, the larger context and, uh, the dynamics at play, not just regionally, but uh, but around the world. Let me go ahead, uh, and I've actually written something, and that means, as people know who listen to the podcast, that uh, I'm taking this seriously, and I want to um, say the right thing. I don't want to just like ramble as I usually do. So here's what I put together. <clears throat> we spoke last time on the Settlers episode about our difficulty in addressing the recent events in the Middle East. Andy, as we just saw, has the benefit of having some skin in the game by virtue of his background. Uh, all I have are a series of political and moral convictions that go back several decades to my earliest political consciousness uh, and the milieu in which I was raised. In New York City, political or moral convictions in $2.90 will get you a subway ride. Just about every force in society at the moment, the politicians, the media, the NGOs, etc., beg that I and we put our moral and political convictions aside in favor of choosing sides in a religious, ethnic, or civilizational struggle. To choose between the civilization of the bourgeois nation-state system on the one hand, or the barbarism of nihilist savagery on the other. To choose ethnic cleansing and national so chauvinism, or a slow demise of the promise of self-determination, and a peace that's indistinguishable from the peace of the graveyard. 
to stand with Arabs or Jews, Muslims or Zionists, the children of lightness or the children of darkness, as Bibi said. This is just as much an imperative of the left as it is of the right. And the murky prehistory of the atrocities of October 7th and the subsequent greater atrocities of the IDF make the pseudo-clarity of this choosing a temptation almost too good to pass up. If we are to speak in civilizational or sectarian terms, the conflict that has rocketed from Israel and Palestine to the rest of the world can best be understood as a civil war within the world Jewish community. This civil war predates October 7th by many decades and is itself a remnant of the great 20th century battle within the Jewish world between the internationalist Jewish working class and the nationalist Jewish bourgeoisie. The founding of Israel as a bastion of refugees from the Shoah did not, of course, resolve the divide, but implanted it on the post-imperial landscape of the Levant. The tremendous courage of diaspora Jews across the United States rejecting Zionism and ethnic cleansing is a testament to this unresolved divide. It is what remains of the promise of the Jewish Bund in the Pale of Settlement, the socialist vorwärts of the Lower East Side, the working men's circles, radical Jewish trade unionism of the Popular Front era, and the like. A history of universalism and cosmopolitanism and anti-nationalism and socialism that has been buried by the national chauvinism and capitalist exploitation of the Zionist program. That this precious patrimony of struggle still exercises itself today in the streets alongside Arabs and Christians in New York City and Tel Aviv is testament that another world still exists in the hearts of many millions across the Jewish world and indeed in Israel itself. We cannot be content, however, to stop our analysis or our activity at a civilizational level. Leave the Brett Stevenses and Barry Weisses of the world to their sectarianism. We cannot join them in wallowing in the obscenity of religious or ethnic chauvinism. But neither should we halt our analysis and activity on the level of the nation state. National liberation is the graveyard of socialism of the 20th century, was the graveyard of socialism. Mark my words and mark them well. The barbarism of the 21st century will ride in on the pale horse of the bourgeois nation. Indeed, and especially on the back of the liberal capitalist state, the democratic nation, the rules-based international order. Not only is the, quote, national community of capital incapable of containing the contradictions of global capital, the great transfers of working-class populations that fossil capital has prepared us to see over the coming decades will make the borders of otherwise civilized nation-states into gray zones and killing fields. So the old task of socialists and communists to build an international working-class movement capable of ending not just national divisions but exploitation itself has faded into the woodwork. It has not only become a seeming impossibility, but something of a moral obscenity, because it would ask us, all of us, to consider the unthinkable. What role might the Israeli working class, these alleged shock troops of settler colonialism, deformed by the land hunger of Zionism, contribute to the internationalist project? Just to ask this question will get you ratioed, vilified by much of the left, called a racist and colonialist yourself. And yet it is a question that must be asked if we are serious about what we claim. You may say, maybe not today, not as the bombs rain down on Gaza, but someday soon. But when are we going to ask it? The truth is that the question is already being posed by the thousands of heroic Jewish American workers shutting down Grand Central Station or marching in Los Angeles or London. These are the millions who reject the imperatives of national community and ethnic solidarity of the counter-revolution represented by political Zionism. It gives hope in an otherwise hopeless situation, and Lord knows it feels hopeless here from the United States. If we win here, however, if we can win socialism here, we can change the world. Our fight begins, as always, at home in the heart of this dying empire. I think that... If you look at the recent news reports coming out of the U.S. State Department, the blob uh, and the Biden administration and the professional diplomats are kind of losing their shit. (laughs) They're kind of really fucking scared right now. There's like potential dissent memos coming out. There's all sorts of leaks to the press about how it seems as though at this moment the American state as this sort of arbiter of the rules-based international order is trying to put too many fires out all at once. And we see right now that um, Ukraine is losing. 
right? That after all the resources put in, all the lives lost on those fronts, uh, the counteroffensive has failed, and that um, you know it seems like a matter of time before this war of attrition ends uh, unfavorably for the Ukrainians and the United States. You've got all sorts of um, zones, troubled spots all around the world that uh, America is trying to influence and can still influence in many different ways. But we are truly in the middle stage, it seems like, of a great, um, a great decline in American power, not just political, but it seems like economic as well. And so the absolute imperative for us, the first imperative, because it is too soon, I think, to start talking about the Israeli working class. Right now, the thing that we should be doing, by and large, is pushing for a ceasefire. But we should always be thinking about the ways in which nationalism, the ways in which chauvinism, uh, the ways in which the state has deformed, in many cases, uh, not just the working class project, but the working class itself. And if we're not willing to go all the way, if we're not willing to open ourselves to the possibility that socialism could arise even out of the worst circumstances, maybe even from the worst people. But moreover, that we ourselves cannot sit here simply and be hopeless, but that in fact we have an incredible potential, an incredible ability to, as this empire declines, as this empire dies, this empire of lies, this empire of mass violence, this empire of the bourgeoisie, this capitalist atrocity that is the savagery of the American empire, we have the ability to attack from the inside. We have the ability to take the great traditions of the American working class. That's the cat. <laughs> the cat's having an intifada over here. <laughs> the great tradition of struggle and fight that the American working class has historically brought in order to um, attempt to build a better world, not just here, but across the world, we still have a shot and we still have a chance at this. And we have to maybe think, all right, so if world socialism is possible and if world socialism could emanate from our own struggles here in the United States, maybe it'll be the settler colonists of Israel that are the last ones to hear the good news, right? But we still need to imagine that we need to go down there someday and take internationalism seriously and take class seriously. Well, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Just what, I, what I'm trying to say when, when we think about the Israeli working class is that in some sense, when we see them marching for you know rent control or something or um, judicial or like a, defending the judiciary, it's easy to say, how, how could they not give a shit about people in Gaza and the West Bank? How, how is there no uh, crossover between that struggle and the struggle of Palestinian people? But that's just the nature of... Um, like working class struggles for self-interest everywhere. Yeah. You know, economistic the, struggles. Yeah. The, the UAW strike, obviously we supported a hundred percent. looks like they had a big victory and it looks like that victory is going to resonate um, in major ways throughout the working class as the, the, the teamster strike did. Yeah. Um, we can't, we can't say these UAW workers are pigs because they're not flying the, the Palestinian flag or they're not bringing that issue to the, to the front. Um, because when working class people fight in their own self-interest, uh, that's, what, that's what we mean when we say we fight for socialism. Mm. And we have a theory that our own self-interest is um, the international destruction of capitalism. Our, our own self-interest does point in the direction of the, of the totality. And it's a hard argument to make because you could easily say, that what's in the self-interest of Israelis is social democracy in Israel uh, that has nothing to do with Palestinian people. And that has historically been the case. That's the, historically been the, the history of the failure of social democracy. And just like the historical failure of, of Stalinist communism has been the idea that you can have socialism in one country mm. and that what class struggle has become since the foundation of the Soviet Union is becoming a mouthpiece for the foreign policy of the Soviet Union or for China uh, or for Cuba. And what, what your struggles are in your life don't matter because you're a, a white settler or something, mm. or a privileged worker, mm. or, um, or even in anarchist spaces that don't believe in that kind of national liberation stuff in the same way that Stalinists do. The idea that what's going on in your workplace or in your house uh, or on your block is not as important as supporting um, more marginalized people in your town or your, or your same neighborhood or 
Um, even like, you know, the um, Block Cop City is happening in a week. And uh, I 100% recommend going down there. It's going to be a, a mass nonviolent day of action um, that I, I really hope succeeds. But at the same time, it's, it's disheartening to me to see the entire anarchist and revolutionary milieu in New York mobilized around that, um, but kind of at a loss of what to do in New York. Mm. So I think we're saying the same thing is that we've got to recenter these struggles on our own lives in some way. And um, I think people at these demonstrations, uh, these pro-Palestinian demonstrations, these demonstrations calling for a ceasefire all over the world, a lot of them are, are struggling to think about how they can take the politics of that into their own lives. And that's where that this momentum needs to go because uh, realistically, at best, this international movement uh, in favor of Palestinians um, will slow the bloodshed or even put a halt to it, but it won't stop it long term. There has to be a structural change, and that structure has to be in the very basis of the world order, which is nation states. I'm sort of repeating ourselves now, but... No, no. At least we're getting the point, the point in, and... Um, Maybe as we wrap up this episode, obviously we're going to be talking a lot more about this. We'll talk about this on the Settlers episode coming up, and we'll have more episodes about this and maybe more historical episodes. And like like Sean said, let us know in the comments what we should be reading, what, sh- what we should be thinking about. We've had a lot of corrections over the last few weeks of mm. people sending us messages saying like, what you said is a little bit wrong, and we appreciate those. Yeah, we do, 100%. We might be a little defensive at first, but uh, <laughs> depending on how you put it, but we, you know... Despite having a podcast, we're just a couple of guys. Yeah. Neither of us are, like, professional academics or whatever, and... Uh, that, and then maybe, well. maybe depending on what the, um, what the reception of this episode is, we could do, like, a, sort of another Q&A episode of, of what people are... Think of what we've said or what other questions they might have, and we'll, we'll try to talk through that. That's a really, really good idea. I like that for like a, a week or two from now. And also, too, uh, I should announce that Varn and I have an episode that we're um, going to put together recording next week. That's great. Which is going to be about the way in which um, the sort of like economic nationalism of like the dissident right wing um, and the sort of like national socialistic sort of um, policies that they're putting forward with closing the borders and blah, 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 um, kind of comes out of the populist left and this like sort of economic nationalism, methodological mm-hmm. nationalism that's kind of par for the course in like regular social democratic mm-hmm. speak and how, you know, that can be used both ways and the dangers of that yep. and looking towards internationalism. And that's something we've always been right about. Yeah. <laughs> we've always been against time, the border. We've yeah. always been against it. And we should, you know, I... Um, maybe like my final statement is that, um, my heart absolutely breaks for Gaza. Um, and like Andy said, I feel like, um, that is a vision of the future. It's the future that we don't want to, that's the path that we don't want to go down. But as I nodded to, uh, in my little statement there, you know, there's going to be, as there always have been for millennia, mass movements of people, and more so, I think, than even when people were first imprisoned within the borders of nation states in, I don't know, a couple hundred years ago. It's really only ever been. And so right now, issues of borders and issues of movements and issues of rights of people, not the right of capital to exploit the commodity labor power of people, but of people themselves are going to be ever more important as more and more parts of the world are ravaged by, as we're seeing now, war, and of course, to the effects of fossil fuel burning capitalism. So something that we got to keep, keep trained on and go to the ceasefire protests, um, do whatever you can to try to stop this fucking atrocity from happening. It's heartbreaking. Being communist means you don't give up. Obviously, in some ways, being a human being means you don't give up. The people in Gaza, maybe some of them have given up in certain ways, but the vast majority of the people there are, are just trying to figure out how to survive day by day the same way that they've done their entire life. And if they have to survive in a another refugee camp in Sinai, they will. And what it means to be a communist is that as bad as things get, as you know, wrong as we might have been in the past, as much as our products might have failed in the past, we don't give up. We don't give up. And we don't give up on our politics either. That's right. Even in the worst of times. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Sound off in the comments. Yeah, we know you will. We'll see you there.